Uh, in a moment, we're going to be reading from the Bible. We're, we're starting a new series as uh, we head into Easter. Uh, a series will take us all the way up there. A series in the book of Acts. Uh, Acts uh, perhaps is familiar to some of us, uh, and in some ways that could be a danger. Uh, someone helpfully put it to me the other day about um, uh, how Christians, after a while, uh, lack that zing and excitement, whereas Acts is a book all about excitement. You know, he, he compared it to how, uh, you know, some sort of antique picture that hangs in one of those you know, old-style gentlemen's clubs where people sit around drinking brandy and have cigars, and gradually the smoke just kind of covers and, and, and deadens and dulls the glory of the painting over time. Uh, and, yeah, it's still there, but, but the sharpness is gone and the beauty that once stirred is just kind of a little bit covered over. Uh, sometimes some of us get that way uh, with the gospel and good news of Jesus and Acts is just a beautiful antidote. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones called it a tonic uh, for the soul, uh, the book of Acts, because the book of Acts we're picking up, it's kind of the sequel to Luke. Some have called it uh, uh, the Acts of the Apostles, that's what Acts is short for. So it's the action of God's people after Jesus rose back up and, and seeing the message go out to the world. Others have kind of called it it would be helpful to say acts of the Holy Spirit because God's Spirit is so powerfully at work in those events. Uh, and, and perhaps Luke himself saw it as uh, the acts of Jesus, at least the ongoing ones. After he rose, he didn't stop but kept going. But it's a book all about excitement because it's a book all about the world being overturned, starting with people's lives that get changed by the news of Jesus uh, and spreading out that whole cities, nations, countries, cultures get completely turned upside down by the work of Jesus. Uh, we're going to look at it for the next 10 weeks, I think it is, as we lead up into Easter. Uh, and I, we're looking at it with a hope and with expectation of real change. You know, in, in, a, in a culture where individualism reigns, uh, Acts calls us to have real community of, of selflessness and love. You know, in, in a culture where truth gets relativised, Acts says, no, no, there is absolute truth, the Lordship of Jesus, and it's powerful. Uh, in a culture that, that wants to quieten the church's voice, it reminds us that, that no one can stop the power of the message. Uh, in, in a culture where excellence is the key to success, we're reminded, no, no, dependence on God is the key to success. Uh, in a culture that says, you know, comfort, seek it at all, all costs, access, no, no, suffering and costly discipleship is where the real rewards lie. We're looking at the book of Acts and I trust and hope and pray we will be excited by the way that it transforms lives, the message and transforms this world. Why don't we pray about that? Thanks for the thumbs up, appreciate that. Why don't we pray? We're going to read, we're going to, we're going to read uh, from, from Psalms and Acts uh, and then we'll look at it a bit closer. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we do thank you for the book of Acts. Uh, we thank you for your word that is so powerful and we thank you for the message of the gospel. Uh, which transforms and changes lives. Uh, Father, as we hear it read now, as we spend time reflecting on it, we pray that your spirit would be working powerfully to change us, uh, renewing us, exciting us about the power of the message and transforming us to live in such a way that pleases and honours you. Uh, and Father, we pray this for our sake, but also for our suburban city's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if you want to flick over to Psalm 110, Kathy's going to come and read to us. First reading is from Psalm 110, which is on page 434 in your Bibles. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. 
You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The second reading this morning is Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, which can be found on page 770 in your Bible. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Why don't you picture just uh, for a moment your life as a circle? Not that you're living as a circle, but imagine uh, your life is a circle. And within that that circle, that that sphere, uh, are all the things that you are and all the things that you do. 
But you're looking at that circle, and, and in it, you you know, you've got your job and and, and your loved ones and uh, and your hobbies and your possessions and your house and your and, and your background and your education and your passions and you know, are, are you picturing it? Okay, in that circle, in in, in the centre of that circle that you're looking at, that, that circle of your life, there's a seat. It's more of a kind of plush CEO's chair. Uh, it's really a throne. It's the centre point that, that controls all the action that happens in your circle. And as you picture that, that circle of your life, what's at the centre point? Who is on or what is on that throne? That's a great answer. That's terrific. It's, it's where I want to take us to get us thinking about it. You know, is God, is the Lord Jesus at the centre point? I mean, obviously Jesus is going to be somewhere in our lives, otherwise we wouldn't be at church, would we? Uh, he's, he's in some part, but, but is he there in the middle? You know, I ask that question because it's a question uh, I've been asking myself this week. It's a question I think the opening chapters of Acts force us to ask. Luke wants us to be clear on on one really important detail that actually frames the whole book. Uh, The book of Acts will make no sense to us and will get no value out if we don't answer that question clearly today. One detail that our lives have to testify to, that Jesus is alive and on the throne. So ever, ever the careful journalist, Luke starts with the facts about Jesus. In, in verse 3, he points out that uh, the risen Jesus was seen by many over a period of 40 days. Uh, he wants to make it clear there's an abundance of proof out there. So Christianity is nothing if Jesus' body is still in the tomb. Now Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus is not risen, then Christians are the most pitiable fools in the world. And Luke draws attention to the, the many proofs over a length of time because he knows that this matters that Jesus is alive. Because it's true to say, yes, Jesus was a great figure of history, but, but unlike greats of the past, he's also a great figure of the present. You know, he is alive even now. He is risen and ascended. He is on the throne. In 1 verse 9, you notice it was described that he was taken up into heaven. It, it's, it's a passive verb there. Sorry to be all English and grammatical on you. But the sense is he was taken up. It, it's not a coup. He didn't force his way into heaven, but rather he was found acceptable by God and invited in to take his place. Uh, just like Elijah had been taken up by a, a fiery chariot because he was welcomed in the presence of God and found acceptable, so too Jesus is taken up in a cloud into the glory of God. He is alive and he has ascended and one day we're told, he tells them he will return again. Verse 11, he will come again the way that he left. Not that going to the Mount of Olives and and the clouds are what matters, but the sense of he will come again bridging that gap between the transcendent God and our experience here. Those are the facts. That's the reality. Jesus is alive and he's on the throne. But but the significance only comes out as we, we read on that story in the opening part of Acts. So as it picks up pace... Uh, we see the significance of his resurrection. The facts declare that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. That's Peter's summary in, in 2.36. So skip over just a page, go to the end of, we're looking at the, the first two chapters of Acts. Peter is there, is, is kind of forced to explain what had gone on. So Tim read to us uh, from you know, those events at Pentecost and you know, there were questions, uh, the Spirit gets poured out in abundance on the apostles and, 
And in 2.13, some people thought, oh, yeah, early morning drinking session. Uh, you know, you, you get that sense that there was a festival going on, Pentecost, not that dissimilar to an Australian kind of festival if people are drunk at that hour of the morning. And you kind of go, no, 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 says Peter, they're not drunk. They're not drunk at all. This is the beginning of a new era, he said. Uh, in 2.16, he points out, no, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, that in the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. A new era has begun, Peter says. A new era where in verse 21, everyone, no matter your background, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. This new era has started all because the Lord who gives good gifts has gone to his throne. He has ascended and taken his place. And so Peter is preaching to these these men of Israel in 2.22. He says how, and accuses them, and says how, despite all the evidence that Jesus gave that he was a man of God, an agent of God, you know, with wicked men, you put him to death. You crucified him. But in verse 24, 2.24, it was impossible for death to hold him. Uh, the language used there, the, the pangs of death couldn't hold him. It's normally the language used for a woman in labour. You know, death couldn't hold Jesus any more than a pregnant woman can hold her baby inside forever. He had to be out. That's the language Peter's trying to evoke. It was inevitable. Death couldn't hold him. And as Peter goes on to explain, death couldn't hold him, and that's the proof that he is the promised ruler of the world, the Christ. That was what God had promised. The one who could beat death is the one who can rule this world. And so he gets to verse 34. For David, great King David, he didn't ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, another Lord for David, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Be be clear about it. Jesus is alive and well today. And he sits at God's right hand because he is the Lord and the Christ. He is the Christ, which is a fancy title, anointed one, the the one who would rule, an earthly king who would rule God's kingdom eternally. But he's also the Lord, and it's used interchangeably there between the Lord God. So uh, he's now handing out the spirit that the Father had promised. He's not just another man, he is the Lord. Uh, And just as the Romans would say, you know, Caesar is Lord, as a way of saying my allegiance is with him, Christians say Jesus is Lord, and it demonstrates the same. And that's where it strikes that little circle of your life and cuts right into the middle. See, to say Julius was Caesar uh, states a fact. If you said it today, it, you know, it's an irrelevant fact, isn't it? It doesn't make it different. You know, you, you're not going to spend your money differently because, oh, Julius was Caesar. You know, it's irrelevant. Why? Because he's dead. He has no claims on your cash, your heart, your time, your family. He's dead. But, but to say Jesus is Lord is an entirely different claim because Jesus is alive. And so every time those words are uttered, Jesus is Lord, a claim is made on you. I knew a woman who uh, used those words, Jesus is Lord, pretty, pretty loosely. Uh, she happily claimed to be a, a Christian. Uh, it grieved her that her de facto wasn't. Uh, she claimed that Jesus was Lord and, and she had a good heritage of Bible teaching. She actually knew lots. But she had no regular Christian fellowship and her life had kind of no signs of the spirit being at work. Uh, and eventually it was her partner, uh, I got to witness this, who burst her bubble. 
uh, in the gentlest way, he said, you're a hypocrite. Uh, you think there's a big difference in what we believe, but we're basically just the same. And he nailed it. You know, she thought she could say Jesus is Lord as though it was an irrelevant fact of history, not a living claim on her life and soul. And John Stott reflected, ultimately the question can simply stated, is Christ the Lord or not? And if he's Lord, is he Lord of all? The, the Lordship of Jesus must be allowed to extend over every part of those who confess Jesus is Lord. No one is truly converted who is not both intellectually and morally converted. It has to touch everything. You know, he is enthroned in the world. And is he crowned in your heart? You know, it's entirely possible to be a, a regular churchgoer, to, to be even a connect leader who, who teaches the Bible, to be a parish councillor. You could even be a paid minister and not have Jesus on the throne of your life. Sure, he's in your life, but not on the throne. And whenever that happens, it just does huge damage. First of all, it damages you. Because you grow hardened by thinking that this cheap version of grace you've got is doing you some good when it's not. And it damages others and, and, and the ripple effects when your ungodliness gets exposed or, or you know, your ungodliness has the opportunity to make decisions other people follow. So is Christ the king of your life? How might you know? Well, the challenge of Acts 1 and 2 is whether he is seen as Lord in your life, but it also gives us signs to recognise whether he really is. The, the, the second point I want us to grasp, that Jesus is on the throne and our lives must testify to him. Our lives must bear witness to that. Three ways Acts 1 and 2 pick that up. First, by the task of proclaiming him, making him known. In 1 verse 6, the disciples ask the question, Will you restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? Now, it shows that even after all he had been teaching them about the kingdom of God, which in 1 verse 4 he'd repeated again, they're still thinking about you know, parochial and political kingdoms, just their little patch. When are you going to, you know, are you going to do it now to back for us in Israel? And, and, and so in 1 8, he redirects them. He, he again expands their vision. Uh, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, the, the, the real task of bearing witness to Christ, speaking the truth about Jesus, is set before them. Not softening the edges. They need to bear witness to the truth. Not removing the bits they don't like. It's what Peter ended up having to do in front of those crowds at Pentecost, you know, calling them, you murderers, uh, and things like that. He, he couldn't soften it at all at that point. You know, Peter shows his certainty that Jesus is the Lord by declaring that truth in front of crowds of mixed cultures, mixed languages. Uh, the climax of his preaching in 240, uh, with many other words he warned them, or, or with, more literally it says, with many other words he bore witness to them. Exactly what he was told to do in 1.8. And he continued to exhort them. That is, he didn't just stop after one attempt, but he kept persuading and pursuing. See, to have and know that Jesus is the living Lord means that you want to tell others of him. It's an incredible restoration, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. That's right. 
Yeah, I'm going to get to the power of the Spirit and how it transforms them in a moment. Thank you, though. It's a great, great recounting, though. That's exactly right. Peter the coward, once he has really experienced that Jesus is Lord, he is transformed. And the way it's seen is he testifies it to it to others. So it's unlikely that you or I will get that opportunity. I, I, I suspect few of us are going to be uh, standing up preaching on the corner and have thousands of people coming and listening. Uh, it may happen, but more realistically, in the course of a lifetime, several thousand opportunities will pop up, just in little ways. You know, I heard this week of a, a Christian woman and uh, her friend was under huge pressure as a, a single mum. Uh, she'd already given her an appropriate book about Christ. I know she'd had conversations with her about the things of God. Uh, but she followed up by, by spending a day and a half uh, while this woman was away cleaning up her house. Why'd she do it? Like Peter, she wanted to just do as many opportunities as she could to proclaim that the Lord, that, that the Lord Jesus was alive and this was something of his love. Spoke about it, lived it out. Like Peter, who persisted with many words, we don't stop after one attempt. That is a life that bears witness that Jesus is Lord. A second sign of bearing witness that he's the Lord is his lives of trust and repentance. So in 2, 2 verse 37, as Peter's finishing and declared Jesus the Lord, um, the crowd there kind of go, oh, what do we do? And, and you know, they're wondering what the next step is. You know, the man that we were kind of part of seeing killed turned out to be the ruler of the universe. No wonder they're kind of asking, oh, what should we do at this point? And Peter's clear in verse 38, repent. Repent, turn your life around. Take responsibility for the fact that you have been rejecting God or living for yourself, not doing things, but you know, don't, don't pretend to be innocent. Don't play the victim, but repent. Turn around, own it, and, and be baptised. Be, be completely immersed in this new identity of one of Jesus's. Have a new start, a new life, and, and experience the forgiveness that he brings. That's what he goes on to say, forgiveness of sins. You know, it's amazing grace, isn't it? You know, this, this crowd just seven weeks before had been part of murdering God's son and now he is offering them complete pardon. You know, it's that same grace that Peter goes on to say is offered to all who are far off. You know, the, the kingship of Jesus, that he is alive and ruling, is testified by, by our lives that reek of his gracious mercy. As someone put it, one act of obedience is better than 100 sermons. I was so encouraged to hear a, a primary school boy, a Christian boy, uh, whose teacher was playing uh, video clip requests in class. I'm not really sure what part of the curriculum that fits under, uh, but they're doing it, and you know, requests were called out. And uh, one of the clips had um, uh, had girls, uh, well, women, in very little, doing far too much, uh, and uh, he had the courage to ask his teacher whether it was really appropriate. You know, even in children, real repentance is powerful. Yeah, and it's in that life of complete trust that we testify that Jesus is the living Lord and there's nothing in life that's, that's out of bounds for him to tell us what to do. The third sign is going to be the way we participate in that community of devotion. See, Peter finishes his sermon and in verse 41, 3,000 get added to their community that day. Uh, we're told earlier in Acts 1 there's only 120 of them to start with. Um, what a massive impact. Uh, scholars estimate there are about between 60 and 120,000 people in the city at the time. It was a, it was a festival uh, of Pentecost, so it's hard to know exactly. But So somewhere between 2 and 5% of the, the people in the city at the time signed up on the day. Massive. 
And this new community is created, this, this completely devoted community. And they're devoted in verse 42 to learning more, the apostles' teaching. They're devoted to loving each other. They're, they're devoted to, to, to eating together in verse 44 and 5. They, they pool resources to care for those in need. Now, they're devoted to worship in verse 47. And what's the effect of that? Well, it's a powerful witness that means in verse 48, daily new people joined them because they could see here are people living with a different Lord to everyone else, one who is alive. Now, it is a powerful statement, isn't it, when, about who rules when you, when you give up golf for church or you give up the family night for your connect group. Or you care for those in need. Someone shared with me how their, their Christian friends had just incurred this, um, this hefty and unexpected $5,000 bill. Their immediate reaction was that they should dip into their savings. They're not rolling in cash, but they wanted to help these people out. You know, that, that kind of devotion to God's community and learning from him speaks volumes about who really runs your life, who really runs this world. See, as others look in on the circle of your life, who would they see sitting on the throne? Who would they think has the crown? Who does your life testify and bear witness to? This kind of radical shift can sound pretty intimidating, can't it? Yeah, it's great news, Jesus is the Lord, but bearing witness to him, it's big. Uh, The vital final thread, the final point that runs through these opening two chapters... Jesus is on the throne, but he is still working. He's still working. Uh, In 1 verse 1, it opens up referring to to Luke's former volume covering what Jesus began to do. And this volume covers the continuing work of Jesus. And all through this section, he is at work fulfilling the task he set up. And so we see Jesus at work establishing his witnesses. So in 1 verse 2, he chose his apostles. But you may be familiar with the story. Judas Iscariot betrayed their one short. And so um, there's this section in 12 to 26 that we we kind of skipped in reading where they find a replacement for that trader. And after they check that he's got all the, you know, you know, check some criteria, you know, they'd have personal knowledge of Jesus' entire ministry from baptism to resurrection. They've got two contenders left who fit the bill and so they cast lots, they flip a coin. You know, ultimately it's left in the Lord's hand to choose. But even more, Jesus is at work not just in picking him but in, in equipping them to testify. You know, that, that Pentecost was dominated by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You know, in 2 verse 2, it's all God's initiative. Uh, you notice... He came upon them suddenly, verse 2, suddenly, 2 verse 2, suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. And so these natural forces of wind and fire and speech produce supernatural results. Uh, Yes, the Holy Spirit does all sorts of wonderful things for Christian people, but, but Acts 2 focuses really on just one thing, how he equips people to bear witness to him. In 1 verse 8, Jesus spoke about this power to come. Not that he was going to make them politically powerful to force people into the kingdom. No, no, no. A dynamism to perform the task of testifying. To be willing to witness to him. And that's exactly what happens in Acts 2. They are enabled to speak to the language of the nations. Fulfilling the task, giving an inkling of that task that Jesus had set them. You know, in the Tower of Babel, judgment was put upon people. That their languages were used as a division to keep people apart. But now it's being reversed. They are drawn together. Not being homogenised as one, one empire, but, but each culture uniquely brought under Christ. 
And Jesus is still doing that same work, equipping all of us as prophets. In 2 verse 18, the Spirit is given just indiscriminately on God's people. So so before Jesus took his throne, uh, the Spirit in the Old Testament, the Spirit just came in power on some prophets, some rulers. But in these last days, now that Jesus is on his throne, he's giving good gifts. You know, he doesn't matter your age, doesn't matter your stage, all who are in Christ, they have his spirit. And so like the, the prophets of old, they are equipped to testify to him. Yes, it is a big task to testify to the living Jesus to the ends of the earth. But we have everything we need to do it. Yes, he has given us a big responsibility to make his rule known. It's a responsibility we have as individuals, we have as a community. Because mission is not something we can budget for and outsource and then relax. We all engage in testifying to Christ. That's why uh, in 2011 we're we're focusing on making this a year of reaching those we know. know. Thinking of three specific people to reach with the great news of the living Jesus. Now what a responsibility. It's a great responsibility to think that we could help three people find the forgiveness for sins that they desperately need. What a responsibility. Three people's eternity connected to your actions. But it's responsibility we take on with confidence because we have the Spirit's power. It's really Christ working in and through us. Uh, Martin Luther was a man who um, overturned the world, uh, being the, the kind of human leader of the Reformation. But this was his take on what happened. He said, I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply preached and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. Uh, And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Armsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. He understood great responsibility, but he knew where the power was. And maybe we all need to hear that today. You know, I know I do. <laughs> I'm wrestling with my diary to kind of reorder my life so I can invest in, in three people in such a way to, to testify faithfully and repeatedly to them about Jesus. You know, my challenge working at church is I, I spend more time than most with Christian people, fellow believers. Uh, Acts is really helpful uh, in challenging that, encouraging me in that. I trust it is for you. you know, your challenge may be a different one. Different to Perhaps it's a, a lack of biblical knowledge means that you need to do some serious study to carry your responsibility better to, to make him known to those three people. You know, perhaps it's a, a fear of displeasing people mean that you need to be challenged to, to know what's really good for these people. Not keeping a polite friendship but actually sharing the gospel that's their ultimate good. You know, whatever your challenge is, know that he is at work and the power is ultimately his. He is alive, he is enthroned, and he must be borne witness to. I'll finish with a quote that captures the heart of what happened in Acts 1 and 2, and a, a quote I hope summarises the circle of your life. True faith is not mere mental assent to certain theological propositions, but a living, burning, active principle which works by love, purifies the heart, overcomes the world and brings forth much fruit of holiness and good works. Let us live as if a dying, risen, interceding and coming Christ were continually before our eyes.
Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we praise you that uh, death could not hold the Lord Jesus, but he is risen and he's alive and he's seated on the throne. And maybe he on, may he be on the throne of each of our hearts this day. Father, we pray that uh, our lives would testify to the rule of Jesus, that we'd be proclaiming him, that we'd be living lives of repentance and trust, that we would be uh, devoted to your community in such a way that others would know he is the Lord. And we pray that that would be clear in our lives, not just for our benefit, but that it would shake and stir our suburban city and bring them all to eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.